One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. I am Lizelle. And I'll be speaking with leading experts and familiar faces from the world of well-being to bring you wellness wisdom you can trust. From fitness to gut health, mood to menopause, you will quickly learn how to spot a gem of wellness wisdom from a passing fad. And this week, I had the pleasure of chatting to one of the most trusted voices in the beauty industry, Sally Hughes. You will find Sally's work in many of our most cherished publications, and she is perhaps best known for her role as resident beauty columnist for The Guardian Weekend magazine. There she's grown a loyal following for her straight-talking approach and for sharing the very best of beauty products from high street to high end. True to style, we had a very no-nonsense chat, debunking clean beauty claims and discussing the worrying rise in internet trolls. Sally also shares her thoughts on the power of fragrance and the secret stories behind some of our best-loved beauty buys. I'm so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this episode over on Instagram, perhaps after the show. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Very great to have you here. Delighted. Let's go back to the beginning. You are such an advocate for beauty. Where did that come from? Where did your early passion start? I loved beauty. I think the first time I was really sort of enchanted by it was I was sitting on my grandmother's bed one morning and we were getting ready to go into town. Um, I say town, a very small town in South Wales called Blackwood, and we were going to the market to buy some meat. And she was putting on her makeup, and I just couldn't stop staring at her doing it. And I said, why do you wear makeup? And she said, well, if I've got my makeup on, we're always ready to go on an adventure. <laughs> and I love that. And I thought that was so lovely. And she said, what if we went into town now, and we bumped into somebody, and we got a lovely invitation, and we didn't look our best, and we didn't want to go, and... This way yeah. we'll be ready. We'll be ready to go on an adventure. Of course, we never went on the adventure. We never did that. But I just think that the way beauty was framed in my family was quite positive. I didn't yeah. have a mother who criticised how she looked. I didn't have a grandmother who criticised how she looked. There wasn't this kind of relentless dieting and nitpicking about anyone's appearance. People just took pride mm. in what they had and in looking after themselves. And so I found that quite enchanting. Mm. And then you did go on your adventure because you left Wales. Mm -hmm. You came to London mm -hmm. at 15? Uh, just before my 15th birthday. Just so, before your 15th? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. But, but not long. So I was I was technically 14, but basically So did 15. you do a bunk then from school? You yes. You just do a runner? Okay. Yes. I hadn't been going, though, for a really long time. And there were all sorts of problems at the time um, in adolescence and at home. Yeah. And so I basically stopped going to school. I had a boyfriend in London who I would run off and see all the time. Um, and so one day I left and got on a train to London and didn't go back. And didn't go back. Mm. And I mean, this was, that's going back a bit, so it's before mobile phones and Definitely before mobile that. phones. So what did yeah. your parents think? Well, my mother had left when I was a baby and my father had raised me until an awful lot later. Then I'd moved in with my mother and my mother and I never had a good relationship. Right. Um, and so it was troubled. So actually, in terms of what my parents did, nothing really. Right. Um, literally nothing. Um, and so I never went back. I mean, it sounds terrible and it is terrible. And of course, I have a child the same age as I mm. was now. And it's horrific, the thought of him fending for himself. But 
Um, I wouldn't recommend it, but it worked out okay. Yeah, but the times were different then. I mean, I left home um, at 17 and moved up to London and just had to get on on my own because I think in those days you did. I mean, there wasn't that constant connection from a mobile or a WhatsApp group or whatever. All of that, that's absolutely true. But also what we did have, I think, was more opportunity to make something of ourselves in a creative field in Mm. the media. I think it's quite different now. I think you basically need to come from money or be incredibly lucky. Have a lot of opportunity. Whereas I think when I moved to London, I think if you were interesting and interested Mm -hmm. um, and you went out a lot and you were interested in other people and you liked odd creative people and you made yourself known, opportunities came your way. There was certainly a lot of new things happening because your first job was as an assistant to a makeup artist, is that right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, those things, they were all so new. I remember talking to Mary Greenwell actually here not that long ago, and she was saying, you know, she started working in in a cosmetic counter and was asked in Hollywood just to go and do somebody's yeah. makeup because there was nobody else there. Exactly you know? <laughs> that. She, exactly that. She found herself accidentally doing a magazine cover, didn't she? Yeah, Mary? exactly, as you do, or as you did back then. Yeah, and in my case, I met uh, Lynn Easton, who was known as Pearl, who at that time was one of only about ten makeup artists in London. It really wasn't what it is now. I yeah. think people don't realise how rare it was in those days. And I met her in a bar called Fred's in Soho. I remember Fred's. On Carlisle Street, I remember. Oh, my goodness. We probably bumped into each other or bumped into yeah. each other. <laughs> so um, I was introduced to her and I knew lots about her and um, we hit it off. And she, by the end of the night, probably within the hour, had asked me if I wanted to be her assistant. Not because she thought I was brilliant, but just because that's how things kind of happened yeah, at that time. Very much. Um, and I did. I became her assistant from the following week. And it's great, actually, because her niece, Celia Burton, is now a really prominent makeup artist. And it's lovely. And I know Celia. Um, and we talk about Pearl all the time. Oh. And it, it's lovely that she um, she's seen on the legacy. Yes. So how did the writing start then? Because uh, you are known for being a brilliant writer. And yet, by the sounds you. of it, you didn't have much schooling that enabled you to do that. Thank you. Um I only wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be a makeup artist. I became a makeup artist assistant because I was too young to get work experience on magazines, but that was literally all I wanted to do was to be a writer. Um, I think I was about four when I told my father I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know the word journalist, so I said I wanted to be an author, but what I actually meant was journalist. And he said, fine, do that then. And so... I just always thought that that's what I would end up doing. Mm. And I was singularly focused on that until it happened. And how did it happen? So as soon as I became old enough, I did loads of work experience. So I worked on uh, Take a Break magazine. I worked on um, Looks magazine. I remember them. (laughs) Um, You know, Teen Mags and um, Woman's Journal. I worked on just loads and loads of different magazines. And then... I heard there was a job going in the fashion department. No, there was a work experience gig in the fashion department going at Loaded. Uh, And so I went along for the interview and nobody was there. They had all gone out the night before and got really drunk and not turned up for work. So I sat on my own in the fashion office waiting for the fashion editor to come in and interview me. And he just didn't come. So after about two hours, um, I just tried the door on the fashion cupboard and it was unlocked. And in there, there was this huge pile of designer clothes. And so I just thought, well, I'm here now. So I started organizing them and dividing them into designers and PR agencies and writing out dockets. And there was a fashion monitor on the shelf. So I got that done. And by the time they came in, I'd just completely you, you'd done got the, the job because you were there. So they gave me the work experience <laughs> gig. And then I think I started on the Monday and they gave me a job on Wednesday. Isn't that brilliant? But again, that's yeah. something that happened more in those yes. days than it does now yeah and then the guardian how long have you been there writing so i'd been a journalist for many years i wrote for the guardian a lot i would write for the opinion section and the family section and then uh, the incumbent beauty columnist on the guardian was leaving um, because she had become a sort of famous internet sensation and she could no longer make them video content which is what they wanted Um, and so that had come to an end and they were rethinking the page and um, I had been vocal about thinking that the page was a wasted opportunity. And so they got me in and said, do you think you can do better? And I said, yes. And they asked me to write six dummy columns and make two videos, which I did. And they gave me the job on Halloween, I remember. 
uh, I think that was 2011, so it's almost 10 years. Mm. Oh, no, Halloween 2010, and it started January 2011. Yeah. And so at that time, you must have been one of the first beauty writers, bloggers, vloggers, social media instigators, what we now know as influencers. Well, I think The Guardian was good in that it was... By the time I joined The Guardian, in fact, the reason I got that job is because they wanted video content and their current columnist wasn't able to make it for them because she had her own YouTube channel. And so they were very, very focused on digital from the very beginning in a way that lots of the broadsheets were. I was going to say, they were an early adopter. They were really early and they were really focused on digital stuff, which was great for me because it meant that I never had to readjust the way other journalists did. I yeah. just felt I hit the ground running with digital and that was great. Um, but also, they were really, I think to give credit and slight criticism to The Guardian, which would apply to all newspapers, I think because The Guardian didn't understand beauty and didn't have a heritage of understanding beauty or respecting beauty. Yeah, it's not fairness, like Vogue, is it? Guardian, no, Guardian exactly. readership is not known for that. Exactly. There are, some, there are some publications who respect beauty and there are some that don't. And broadly broadsheet newspapers didn't and because the guardian hadn't historically respected or understood beauty they were really really amenable to me doing what i wanted to do and they were slightly blinded by science and so when i went to see them i remember really clearly explaining to the editor that i couldn't understand why beauty journalism was treated differently because it's it has to have a beginning a middle and an end it has to have some style it has to have some jokes it has to be factually correct it has to be well researched it's exactly the same mm. as all other forms of journalism and i couldn't understand why publications were treating it as this slightly thick little sister it, well it was either it was either really really florid and overwritten or really yes. scientific or it was dumbed down and silly and actually, I said to my editor, every woman I know is intelligent, funny, mm. um, sceptical. Has a bathroom full of stuff. And every woman I know likes to look industry. nice. Yeah. So why are you treating as though these women are over here and the woman who likes to look nice is over here? It is literally the same woman. Yeah. And so stop patronising her. Yeah. And, you and must they were like, yeah, OK. <laughs> you must have seen a lot of change in the digital space and the social media space over those years change for good and maybe change for not so good yeah I mean it's the biggest change that anybody in the media has ever seen I think it's the biggest thing since the printing press isn't it there's you know there's yeah. nothing there's nothing bigger than the digital revolution and yeah I mean it's had good and bad effects I have to straddle both because you've had some bad stuff last year. You were quite vocal about trolling. La last year was pretty horrible. Last year was really, really difficult. Um, Tell us what happened. So um, a blogger who I didn't know, a, a mummy blogger, got in touch with me and asked me to help her um, because her life and her mental health was being ruined by a hate site. And she said, as somebody, the implication of this email was, as somebody senior within the industry with possibly more influence than me, can you help me close it down? Because they hate you too. They talk about you all the time too. I said, look, I just don't want to read it. I'm really, really self-controlled with things like that. I just don't read the stuff. I've got loads of things blocked on my Google searches. I just don't ever want to accidentally read that stuff. So it went on for months without me really knowing how bad it was. What my family knew was that there were hundreds of threads, hundreds of pages rather, about me, my children, my marriage, my mother, what? my father, why? What, what my that? dead friend, <laughs> because they just hated me. And the, it, there were various reasons they hated me. Um, and I'm, I suppose everyone has different buttons, don't they? I actually don't really hate if, I don't really care if people hate me. Mm. If, if people were sitting around saying, oh, we hate her writing, we hate how she looks, we hate her clothes, I wouldn't really care because I think, okay, well, that's a matter of opinion. I wouldn't really be affected by it. But when people were saying massive lies about my family, about me, about my friends, hundreds and hundreds of statements that were just what? so hugely and completely made up and untrue, um, I found it very difficult. And then, of course, the other thing they did was they were implying that I was corrupt in my career, which 
I can see why if you hate me, that would be the thing you'd go after because that's the thing I'm incredibly passionate about and careful about. And it's kind of the thing that people know me for. For being very open. For being very, um, in terms of declaring and in terms of being uncorruptible. There's Mm -hmm. nothing, you can't do anything to make me put your product in the Guardian. There's nothing, nothing at all that anyone at the Guardian can do or a brand can do to make me put a product in. And I think because I'm sort of known for that, I think that was seen as the kind of really fun thing to try and get me on. But also stuff about the people I really love. You know, that I have a friend who's passed away and um, her now whenever her mother Googles her name, she just gets a thread about uh, of people who hate me making up things about my relationship with her. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really hard and... It so all what, came what, to a head because yeah. they thought it would be terrifically fun to... Um, because I found out who most of them are. In fact, I now know who loads of them are. I've got the names and location and jobs of pretty much all of them now. But at that point, I'd found out who most of them were. And I'd gone in and I'd liked a public picture of theirs and then blocked them. So I'd liked a picture that was publicly available, let them know that I knew who they were, then I'd blocked them. Right. And... Um, they then reported me to a whistleblower account called Estee Laundry, who will publish literally anything. Estee Laundry. Laundry. It's a whistleblower <laughs> a great account. Name. It's a good name. It's a whistleblower account who will publish literally anything that they're sent. There's no fact checking. There's no verification. It's as a journalist, it makes me a bit nuts that people right. believe what they say because they will publish literally anything. Uh, they wrote to them and said that I was corrupt. Um, and that I was harassing them. Somebody compared me to Harvey Weinstein for intimidating my victims by oh blocking them. Oh, my goodness. That, uh, so I had to make a statement, which was mm-hmm. hard for me because I'm a really private person, And I, but I had no choice because within five minutes of them reporting me to Estee Laundry, I was just getting messages from all over the world insulting me, saying I was harassing people. Anyway, in the end, Estee Laundry took it down shortly afterwards mm. when they realised that they'd made a grave error and, they, and I had a conversation with them behind the scenes. But you know it was traumatic and yeah. and I'd I, you said earlier I think that I handle things quite robustly I do but that was a that was a real that was a test of mm. my robustness I don't think to be completely honest I don't think I'll ever be the same again it was Sorry. really 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 hard and, um, but good stuff is coming out of it, though, now, Good stuff it? is coming out of it. I've had hundreds of messages from other people in the digital space saying they're on medication because of the hate sites, they can't leave their houses. What are these hate um, sites? I mean, I'm not prepared they, to name no, no, them. No, 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 don't. But, I mean, but there are sites that exist purely to oh, bitch they, about people. Oh, they and... literally delete and block people for being positive. We've got loads of screen-grabbed <laughs> incidences of people saying, oh, no, well, actually, that's not true about Sally. And then yeah. that person gets blocked and their post deleted. Um, so they just hate kind of gossip sites. Um, but but they hugely affect people's lives. And so I've I've heard from lots of people um, who've been through an extremely hard time and I'm now working on... Um, a really interesting project around it and so good has come from it and it definitely I got lots of messages from people saying that my statement had allowed them to feel as though they'd finally been able to speak out when Mm. they themselves couldn't they felt that I spoke for them um I was reading some awful uh, stuff on trolling not that long ago um with the late uh, dear Caroline Flack. Yes. And just some of the awful things that were said about her. And uh, you just don't know, do you, where that kind of thing is going to lead it's to? It's hard, isn't it? You bring down a beautiful I, person who then I think, ends up taking their own life. I think it's been, it's been such a huge change and people have been tr- trying to keep up with the rules as they go along. Mm. There are certainly things that we've all said, certainly things that I've said years ago when the internet, social media first began that I'd no way would I say now, you yeah, know. Yeah. And you, I wouldn't have said even six, seven, eight years ago because as you go along, you realise that it's not nothing. No. You may think you're slating something you're seeing on the television, but actually the person who makes that programme yes. is reading it and yeah. you don't know what's happening in their lives, you don't know what's happening I in their family. For, you know, where I stand on it is that I'm all for freedom of speech and everyone having a point of view and an opinion, but it should be um, identifiable. 
So, you know, in the old days, if we kind of rewind the clock before social media and people were writing to each other on letters using pen and paper, if you received an anonymous letter... Uh, the anonymity is just ridiculous. You know, if we had a, a horrid letter sent to us saying, you know, you know, causing death threats or whatever, you take it to the police and the police would go and prosecute that person mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. So why we allowed this whole situation where there is anonymity? I mean, people know who you are. They know who I am. You know, that a lot of people have mm -hmm. public accounts... Uh, and I, I'm all for that, but why not have a, a, a legislation where, you know, absolutely have your Twitter account, have your Instagram, whatever, but it needs to be under your real name and verified. I, I that feel, would stop a lot I of the, the, the nastiness, don't you think? It, yes, absolutely. The moment I felt a bit more in control of what had been a really, really traumatic situation was when I had a piece of paper in front of me with everyone's name, yeah. their job, where they worked, yeah. where they lived. Because then you... you're accountable. I mean, for heaven, you can say what you like to anybody. Well, but, and then you can go, then you can go, well, you're just people and actually your quantity is quite small because lots of them have multiple accounts, of course, because if I block them, oh, they start really? another anonymous account so they can continue to follow me. So, but actually, it's quite, if you put your mind to it, it's quite easy to find out who everyone is. Loads of them, what seemed to me like a sea of people who hated me, were actually about 20 people right. with multiple accounts who were kind of school teachers and nurses no. and legal secretaries and pe people mostly in regulated professions. There was somebody who worked at an adoption agency. It's just really shocking. Um, but when you know what you're dealing with, the unknown mm. is scarier, right? When you know what sure. you're dealing with, you kind of think, okay. But you're strong and you have good mental health, but I think that the I worry is, 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 yeah, but the worry is for those who don't and, and how that can tip them over the edge. There are people in my life who have been made ill mm. and that is a fact. Yeah. Well, this. I'm very pleased that you can make it a positive and I look forward to yeah. hearing what your new project is and, yes. uh, and how that can potentially change some of this. So yes, keen to deal with it and mm. put it behind me mm. for sure. Now, your first book, am I right in saying it was Pretty Iconic? No, Pretty Honest came first. Pretty Honest came first, okay. Yeah. And that was a, an honest account of the beauty industry? Yeah, which isn't to say that I think the beauty industry is dishonest, actually. It was more that when I looked at beauty books, um, I kept thinking I'll write a book. To be really blunt, I was going through my divorce and I really needed some money, and I kept thinking I'll write a book, I'll write a book. I was writing a novel at the time. I'd been signed by an agent to write a novel. And I thought, actually, I'd rather write a beauty book because I can see a beauty book that's missing. Mm. Because when I looked at beauty books in bookshops, there were kind of two types. So there was one that was like a beautiful coffee table book by a makeup artist or a hairdresser. And mm. I love those books. But of course, completely nothing to do with your life. Yeah, it's in aspirational, daydreaming. It's gorgeous and aspirational, mm -hmm. but totally unachievable and not about your life. And then there was a sort of well-being book that told you how to make a face mask or how to do facial massage or something. Mm. And I thought, actually, where is the beauty book that is just about normal everyday life? Yeah. What happens when you are going through chemotherapy? Or what do you pack if you're, you think your date might turn into an overnight stay? What... You know, what do you wear to a job interview? How do you look after your skin at a festival? You know, I just thought these mm. these are real situations that women find themselves in. And I want to clarify. I just felt it was, I just felt beauty writing was really, really wordy. And it assumed you knew either everything or nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. And then Pretty Iconic followed that. Pretty Iconic was the second book, yes. And that was about... Um, my husband kept nagging me to clear out the loft and he wanted to throw out lots of big boxes that had makeup samples from decades before work samples and I wouldn't let him and he said why and I said because that's my beauty mixtape you can't throw that away though right. that stuff matters to me yeah. and um, there's an original um, there's an original cleanse and polish in there actually not the pink label the, the pink label oh my goodness um, that's going to be worth something one day <laughs> and so I said, you can't throw these things away because to me, they're not just beauty history, they're my history because I can remember when I bought them, why I used them, yeah. what I was wearing as clothing, yeah. where I was going. And I thought maybe there's a book in there. Mm. And I started drawing up a list of the products that had kind of shaped women. Mm. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And your favourites from that? I mean, if you had to, I know you're always asked this, but if you have to sort of nail your your top five or your top ten. I will always have a very, very soft spot for Miss Selfridge makeup. Really? Because I, it was the most aspirational thing when I was a teenager to have Miss Selfridge makeup. Um, and it was really good makeup. I remember it being very bright. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and I love the youth Jew story. I love Mrs. Lauder, when Estee Lauder invented youth Jew. So tell <coughs> us the story me. about it. So um, Mrs. Estee Lauder, who, as you know, was the founder of Estee Lauder Companies, when she formulated her first fragrance, youth Jew, she formulated it as a bath oil because in those days women couldn't buy perfume for themselves. Men bought you perfume and diamonds and underwear and flowers and women could not buy themselves a fragrance so she cheated it by calling it a bath oil even though it's a perfume oil essentially she took it to Saks Fifth Avenue and uh, pitched it to them and they said we're not going to buy that we'll never be able to sell fragrance made by a woman who isn't a couturier because in those days fragrance was made by mostly male couturiers with the exception of Coco Chanel And they said women will not buy themselves perfume and they will certainly not buy a perfume made by an American Jewish woman who has nothing to do with fashion. Mm -hmm. And so um, undeterred, she deliberately then dropped the glass bottle of youth dew on the floor of Saks Fifth Avenue. No, knowing what would happen. So the whole of Saks Fifth Avenue really smelled strongly of youth dew. And I'm sure you know youth dew. It's not a a subtle fragrance. (laughs) And then for the next two weeks... Women kept going up to counters and saying, what's that smell? What's that smell? I love it. Until they were forced to stock it to meet the demand. And it was the best-selling fragrance of that year. She's so clever. I love that. I I've got a real soft spot for those old New York women with moxie who were kind of entrepreneurial. Oh, and... Well, we think about the great names. Helena Rubinstein. Elizabeth Arden. Elizabeth Arden. Estee Lauder. Real yeah. women yeah. Doing, doing real things. Grafters. Yeah, Totally. And so that's one of my favourites in the book. But but there are lots. And the most gratifying thing about that book is how many women said, my mother and I read this the other mm. day and we were going, remember that, remember that, yeah. remember that. Yeah. Or people who've been friends with their girlfriends since school have, yeah. have reminisced about Lulu perfume or something in the book. Yeah. Well, the great thing about scent, isn't it, is that that connection with the limbic brain and it just immediately transports you. You just catch a whiff of something yeah. and instantly you're taken back to Yeah. 
you know, whatever it is. I can't actually walk past a, a field of grass that's being cut without being taken back to my O-level revision because I used to sit in the field and yeah, revise with the grass Yeah, it's the most evocative thing. Instantly, or unfortunately, you know, you might get a whiff of something that was worn by somebody that you either liked or didn't like. Saint Laurent Jazz. Can you remember Jazz? I do remember Jazz. That's my first snog. Really? Yeah, that's <laughs> totally my first knock. And actually, when I still smell, when I smell it occasionally, you don't smell it so much these days. But if mm. I pass someone, I feel happy, you know, because it was yeah. a nice experience. Yeah. You know, it was happy. Yes, I remember Marguerite. My mother used to wear it. Oh, and Jolly Marguerite. Madame as well. And, and they're just getting that waft. And she would come and kiss me goodnight if they Gorgeous. were going out to some lovely event. And there would be this cloud of perfume. And actually, I posted about perfume on my Instagram not that long ago. And a lady said to me, because um, we were talking about scents that get discontinued, because I used to wear Gucci Envy. Gucci Envy is a brilliant yeah, fragrance. Yeah, and then they flipping it's stopped it. It's such a good fragrance. I bought every bottle I could find on eBay. And, and actually, you know, my husband was really sad because I was wearing that fragrance when we met. And he right. associates it with me. It's kind of part of me. And I can no longer of wear course. it because it doesn't exist. They should bring Envy back because in perfume circles, it is a really well-respected perfume. It's a is very it? beautifully constructed perfume. Yeah. And there's so much love for it that they should bring it back yeah. as a limited, I think. They should. I, well, if they're listening, we'll have to send them this this tape because, uh, you know, uh, the other thing that a lady wrote to me and said um, her mother had been wearing, I forget what it was now, but it was a, a fragrance that was then discontinued. And she said, I'm just so sad because every time I smell it, it reminded me of her and had of so many happy memories of, of somebody course. who's no longer with us. And now it's gone and, I, and that opportunity's been taken away from me. There's is... nothing more evocative than a whiff of, uh, of a loved one or, as you say, a hated one's yeah. perfume. What do you wear you now? Like do you have a new favourite? So I rotate a lot. I always, always have number five and cocoa in... Mm. On my dressing table, I wear Frederick Mao quite a lot. Mm. I like Portrait of a Lady, L'eau d'hiver, yes. Musk Ravager, which is what I'm wearing today. Mm. Um, I like Dime Blonde, Serge Lutens. I like La Mandier by Healy. Lots, lots. I'm a perfume junkie. Yeah. I love it. So do you think these days that we are having more of a wardrobe of scent and not just one yes. signature scent? Yes, and I think I think the rise of cult niche perfumery has been really exciting, actually. Yeah. Um, I think it's really given a boot up the backside of the entire industry. Though it, it does feel like a two-stream industry fragrance now, doesn't it? Yeah. You have your niche cult brands and then you have your buy-over-the-counter at Boots. Yeah, the massive ones when yeah. you walk through duty the coffee, free at the, the airport Christmas and it's just there yeah. just everywhere and you don't get the little yeah. niche ones, which is, it's exciting. I was passing through Liberty the other day and their perfume hall is amazing. Oh, so beautiful. And female perfumers are doing so well as well. They're really mm. at the helm of, of major brands. I wrote a big piece for Vogue recently about female perfumers and some of the biggest fragrances in the world now are, are designed Made by, by women. women. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. You mentioned there about niche brands and smaller brands and of course I think that's the big change that we've seen over the last 20 20, 30 years is it's gone from the big doyens that we were talking mm -hmm. about you know Lauder and Arden and, and um, Cleaning Rubenstein people like that to these these much much smaller niche brands often makeup artist led mm -hmm. do you see more of that happening what do you see in terms of trends I mean certainly that's huge and I think those brands are responsible for the skincare revolution that we're seeing now obviously anybody in the industry knows that skincare is killing it makeup not so much hair's mm. doing very well and I think the fact that skin is thriving to such a degree is largely down to those kind of cultish brands. And I love them too. The issue I have with them, I, I think we live in a world where people at the moment are on a bit of an anti-establishment tip where they like the rebels, they like the disruptors in all aspects of life, not just beauty. Um, and they are instantly distrustful of establishment brands and figures. But I think that's ironic because anybody who works in beauty knows that uh, those establishment brands are such sticklers for claims <gasps> yes. and science so right. and clinicals that actually mm. the cult brands, I find, play really fast and loose with yeah. claims. Yes. And so I get a cult, say, moisturiser in, and it's over £100, and I read the claims and I know that they're nonsense. Yes. Whereas you would never get those claims no. from a Lauder or a L'Oreal. No, or, I mean, they'd have a regulatory or an LVMH, department. Yeah. Or an LVMH. Or, none, mm. or a Unilever. None of those brands mm. would ever make those sorts of claims. And... In all the years I've worked with cult brands, establishment brands, heritage houses, young up-and-comers, 
the ones who are the most scrupulously honest about efficacy are the biggies. The big guys, because they have to be. Because they have to be. Yeah. Because everyone is watching. There are lawsuits waiting to happen. They are really tightly regulated. Um, there is layer upon layer upon layer of regulation and you just can't say anything that isn't true. Yeah. Whereas cult brands, I can't believe the language they use sometimes. Yeah. I get press releases saying it takes 10 years off you. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no it, it definitely doesn't. <laughs> and also you simply would never get Elizabeth Arden saying that about anything. No, no. I know that we are aligned on uh, a lot of what we think about some of the ingredients and this use of kind of, quote, clean beauty. Yeah. Um, do you I, want to talk a little bit about that? I hate the term clean beauty, and I really wish that people in the industry wouldn't use it. It's all very well people on the internet saying silly things, but I don't think brands should be using the word clean, the term clean beauty, um, because I see it as entirely cynical and marketing-led. The implication with clean beauty is that other beauty is dirty and toxic, which is nonsense. Yes. There is nothing in consumer skincare in Europe that is toxic. No. Everything is scrupulously safe, has been tested to the nth degree mm. for many years. And I think that's the other thing that people don't give credit for is how many years these products have and ingredients have been yeah. used. People go on and on about parabens, which is one of my pet hates. There's nothing wrong with parabens. No, oh my goodness. Nothing I'm wrong with so parabens. with you on that. I but wrote a lot about that. people go on and on about parabens. And then yes. you say, well, you know you eat them every day in your food, right? And yes. of course they don't. And I say, so what are you preserving with then? Mm. Yeah, and the of options course, are much worse. You have to put a different preservative in and yeah. one that likely hasn't been used for 60 or more years mm. continuously. And so... I understand why people are more aware of ingredients, and so they should be, and are more aware of what they put on their bodies, in their bodies. However, I feel that brands have a responsibility to be clear and open and truthful. Mm. And I think the clean beauty industry movement has cynically taken advantage of misinformation for yeah. marketing. And I completely <laughs> agree. And I, I remember when the whole parabens... Um, that the bogus study was was first published. It must be, gosh, I don't know how long ago now, 20 years maybe? And it's so discredited. So discredited. And, uh, you know, for anybody who still believes that parabens could be even remotely linked with breast cancer, you know, that is just such nonsense. Um, and yet it is just repeated again and again and again. And even now you just see new brands coming out all the time that you know, proudly say on the label, no parabens, as if that's a good thing. Exactly. You know, I, I actively look for products containing parabens because I know... I want it to it, be stable. Yes, I want it to be stable, yeah. safe, not irritate my eyes, not irritate the rest of my skin, not to breed superbugs. I, I bought a product the other day um, that had a very poor preservative system in it. And within a few days, it had developed a mold. I sent it off to be tested. It was Aspirillus niger, which is you know, also known as farmer's lung, which can kill you. And you know, I think people are unaware that by putting products potentially, you know, they, they go in the eyes, they go on the lips, they're, you know, you're, they're going through your mucous membranes. You know, it's really serious stuff. You've got to properly there preserve is this, a product, There is you? this infuriating belief that has stemmed from that whole kind of wellness, unregulated wellness industry, that natural equals good, <laughs> synthetic manufactured equals bad. Cyanide is natural. Yeah. Arsenic. The, the most toxic substances in the world the are natural. The most tox toxic yeah. substances yeah. in the world are natural. I, I would like to see, as much as I am pleased in many ways that the industry, that the consumer rather, is now really focused on ingredients and efficacy. I think that's a really good thing. But I would like to see respect for formula to mm. return because mm -hmm. that's what I like. Mm. I like formula. Yeah. And this belief that, well, if I, you know, if I take a bit of salicylic acid in this bottle and, yeah. you know, a bit of hyaluronic acid in this bottle, a bit of retinol in here, and I do this sort of pick and mix thing, I'll have perfect yeah. skincare. But actually, it's formula that makes so the something combination, good. The combination, the quantities, mm -hmm. um, the so stability. Would you, not, would you not use individual ingredients? Would you not use hyaluronic acid on its own, for example? I, well, hyaluronic acid is obviously not going to hurt anyone. It's not going to cause yeah. anyone any problems. So maybe that's a bad example. But I do think that in the past... I would say in the past two years, when I am doing events, which I do all the time, when it comes to the Q&A at the end and women come and mm. ask me beauty questions, when they have skin that is really troubled, yeah. 
and I say, what are you doing now? Nine times out of ten, she's still talking five or six minutes later. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> How many things are you using? Stop. You just yeah. don't need all of these things. Yeah. And they're using 13, 14 different yeah. ingredient products instead of three beautiful formulas. Yeah. I mean, who has the time, of course, there's that. Yeah. But also, you can't just chuck the higher the concentration, the better products at yourself sure. and think, well, they'll work the best. Mm. The more retinol, the more vitamin C, then the better it'll work. That's just not yeah. the case, you know. Interesting you mentioned retinol and vitamin C because, I mean, I obviously haven't been connected to the beauty company for a long time, mm. so I'm kind of out of the loop in terms of modern formulary mm. and, and the we'd never use back in the day, you know, retinol because it, you know, it wasn't on our radar back then. Are those things that you're really investing in yourself do you think that that you know using retinols and using vitamin c are the key ingredients to look for now well we know they work yeah. so that's good um we know that clinically those ingredients in the right quantities in the right formula work so that's hurrah for that we like things that are proven i'm personally not much of a retinol user it's just not particularly my bag mm. i do love vitamin c i mm -hmm. suppose we just have different things we want to tinker i'm not so obsessed with wrinkles and i have never had spots yeah. so retinol is not really my obsession what i'm interested in is i hate having dull skin which i'm prone to and i hate having uneven pigmentation which i'm certainly prone to and so vitamin c is just more my bag mm. sometimes if i am doing a column on retinol i'll have to go through several months of using different retinols and then i yeah. do and i'll use the vitamin c in the morning and a retinol at night mm -hmm. But to be honest, left to my own devices, I will use a mild vitamin C for some glow and perkiness in the morning and yeah. a higher concentration vitamin and C at night. And how do you get the stability? Because I was always concerned that vitamin C wouldn't be stable in a product. Do you need to use an ampule or a single I want dose? an airless pump. I want an opaque airless pump. Okay. Ideally kept in the dark and if I see any colour change then I'm never writing about that product if right. I see if I see the colour change if the smell changes um, and that happens a lot mm. it happens a lot you know when people have the dropper bottles of vitamin C and I yeah. just think what how are you keeping that stable yeah. um, do you think we have to pay for what we get or is, is it can we find good value cheaper products we can definitely find good value cheaper products absolutely and I frequently see products that cost the earth that are just useless. I mean, it really depends with, with money. People say to me all the time, you know, is it worth spending this amount of money on mm. this cream or this serum? And I kind of think, well, that's not really for me to answer. It's, you know, what does that money mean to you? Would I personally spend £150 on a moisturiser? No, I would mm. not. Mm. I know that I don't need to. Yes. And you know that you don't need to. Yeah. But if you think that that cream is gorgeous and beautiful, and lots of those creams are, and I love using them because yes. I don't have to pay for them, yes. um, that's fine. It's not for me to decide what £150 means to you. Yeah. But if you're asking me personally, if I spend £150 on a moisturiser, no, I don't. Mm. I think interesting talking about moisturisers, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that I don't actually need a moisturiser. And this is a bit of a revelation for a woman in her 50s. Mm -hmm. And I've become a real fan of serums. I love and serums. I just think that, you know, replacing that that water loss, that, you know, creating that barrier function on the skin, it's been quite a, a, a you know, an eye-opener for me to actually take my foot off the gas of the moisturiser. I think by the, time, by the time you get to moisturiser, it really can't do any heavy lifting anyway. <laughs> I think that... Um, I feel about moisturisers the way I feel about jeans, in mm. that I think J E A N S or <laughs> denim jeans. Right. I think basically everyone wants the jeans that make their bum look good and that are comfortable. And sometimes you're lucky enough that your jeans are from yes. Georgia Asda, and you only have to spend a tenner on them. And sometimes, unfortunately, yeah. your jeans are two hundred pounds. But there's no qualitative difference, really. In it's just which ones yeah. float your boat, and yeah. you just you're lucky if you can get the moisturiser you love for cheap. But I really don't think that the more money you spend on a cream, the more it's going to do. Yeah. I, I mean, I got a moisturiser the other day that was £450, and I just thought, well, you could have two lots of really good Botox for that. I mean, I just don't... <laughs> I, I don't see... Yes. I don't see how anybody would want to spend that on a moisturiser. Yeah. Where do you think the industry is heading if we look to the future? Do you think if we look into the crystal ball... 
I think that I think that the emphasis on skin will continue, but not necessarily just in skincare. I'm pleased to see that makeup is coming back to skin. Mm -hmm. That makeup is is going back to about good quality looking skin rather than covering all the skin up. Um, so I think makeup is now, at the moment, having had a really good five or six years, is now slightly panicking because skin is slamming it in sales. I think makeup are now having to think, okay, well, why? Why are people buying skincare and not makeup? Maybe it's because they want that skin-like quality. And so I think makeup is coming back to that. We're seeing that with Glossier, for example, which yes. is very much about skin. Yes. And I think what's interesting for me is looking at some of the new disruptors. I, and I really like the Beauty Pie model. For yeah, example. I don't brilliant. know what you think about that. I love Beauty Pie. I'm a member. Uh, are you? Yes, so am I. Yeah, yeah. yeah, ditto. And I just think that that idea of just paying what something actually costs yeah. and then paying a subscription service. But I can imagine, you know, I mean, I've had Marcia on the podcast in, in the past talking about Marcia. it. Yeah, she, I mean, she's just genius. She's amazing. But I, I don't suppose that other people in the beauty industry are big fans mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's, it is very, disruptive isn't it yeah and we're seeing that across all consumer goods right mm. aren't we we're seeing that disruptors who come along and make things more transparent more yeah. honest more direct to consumer we're going to see so much more direct to consumer mm. in um, in beauty I, a brand launching now i would be amazed really amazed if i heard they were launching on counter Interesting. I would automatically assume that they would go direct to consumer which we've seen with victoria beckham glossier yes. beauty pie um, so what will I'd happen really to the beauty halls? What will happen to the department stores you know, and the beauty shops? I think when it comes to retailers, it's actually quite an exciting time if you're a creative, forward-thinking retailer. Mm. So I think I always think when I'm working with stores, I always refer back to Waterstones, when Waterstones were really on their knees because of Amazon. Instead of trying to be Amazon, instead of trying to be the internet, what they did was take a step back and think, okay, what can bookshops do that Amazon can't? Yeah, well, we have heart, we have experience, we mm. have community. Mm. Coffee shops. And Coffee shops. Mm. We have a personal touch. And they went hell for leather on that and saved yeah. themselves and are doing really well again. And I think creative retailers um, are really embracing experiential stuff mm. and innovation and partnering sometimes with direct-to-consumer brands in pop-ups yeah. and things like that yeah. which can really drive interest and so I think it's an exciting time but you know boring or grumpy old retailers who don't want to move the times <laughs> are going to suffer and that's horrible yeah. because I love the shops yes. I love the shops yeah. but I, I do think that we'll see more closures you really have to mm. be embracing of the future yeah Something else um, which I'd like to finish on, uh, which I know you also love, and I love too, um, and that is our dear Queen, Her Majesty the Queen. Oh, your, your oh book, love the Queen. Love the Queen. I mean, we just love the Queen. All hail yeah. the Queen. And so your most recent book is called Our Rainbow Queen. Yeah, it's such an odd project. I was so thrilled to do it. <laughs> was that your so, idea? No. So my other books have been my books, my idea. Mm. But um, Our Rainbow Queen came about because I wrote a column not a beauty column, I write other things, and I'd written an opinion column about how much I love the Queen. And it did extremely well, that column, and I think partly why it had done well is that people were quite surprised that I would love the Queen, in that, you know, I'm relatively left-wing, I'm not um, particularly a royalist, but I do love the Queen. Mm. So I wrote this column, and then Penguin got in touch and said that they had just uh, secured the archive of all the Queen's social... Uh, functions, royal engagements over the years. And they wanted to write a book, but they didn't want it to be a classic royal book. They wanted it to feel a bit more contemporary and edgy. And would I be interested? And so I said, yeah. Totally. So I went along and looked at the pictures and just died. There were thousands and thousands of pictures and we talked about how it should be and how it should read. And I was particularly interested in the subtle messages the Queen sends through yes. her wardrobe. And they are it infinite. Is. Yeah. Amazing. Infinite. I've just finished reading um, The Other Side of the Coin, the mm -hmm. book by mm -hmm. her dresser. Mm -hmm. And again, looking at Angela the messages, Kelly. Angela Kelly, She's and when she Angela dresses Kelly. her, mm -hmm. the, whether it's the brooch mm -hmm. or the hem of the skirt or something that's giving off some message. So tell me, so what, what does our Rainbow Queen include? So um, I split it into colours. So it flicks 
through a rainbow. And each colour has photographs spanning her entire life um, in different colours. And then I try to let you in on the customs, the secrets, the subtle cues, the etiquette of the way the Queen dresses and has dressed her entire life. And it's I found it so fascinating. It was the most fun book to research and write. Um, I've never written a book like that before. So normally I sit in my kitchen and write the book. On this occasion, because it was all about the photography, I had to go and sit surrounded by pictures and write it in the middle of this kind of sea of pictures. And it was it was really amazing. What does the Queen think of it? Do you know? Do you well, get any feedback? So obviously the Queen never expresses an opinion and I was worried no. about it. But then... Uh, I know that um, Harry and Meghan's office called it in for them, called in the book for them, and then we got the news that all the royal palaces were going to be stocking it in the gift shop. Oh, which well, they that's do. okay. So, so that's validation. I decided, I decided <laughs> okay, that that was base. That basically uh, meant the Queen must like it, or the Queen's must, office yeah. must approve of it, oh, um, which is quite gratifying because it's quite cheeky in places. So that. Um, that made me um, that made me happy, but yes, and then it, it came out in America recently, and really? uh, Canada and Australia, and yeah, it's been yeah. such a joy, uh, such a joy, real sort of brain dessert after quite a yes. tough time. It was brilliant, lovely. Well, Sally, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. We've managed to cover just such a wide range of subjects more than I thought we would, and it's a joy to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. As always, you will find all the links and resources mentioned on today's show over on lizellwellbeing.com. And there you can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter packed with well-being wisdom and my beauty-boosting tips. Huge thanks to all of you who've left us such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show, so thank you. And until the next time, go well. Bye-bye. Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.